need to address loneliness. It is literally killing us. But more and more, the research is telling us that there are real health consequences of loneliness. There's a 29% increased risk of heart diseases. That's equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes every day. The problem is that more and more people are lonely today. In fact, it's almost one in three. We must connect to people. We must engage with people. Time and time and time and time again, it's community that saves us. My name is Rachel Abel, and this is The Missing Piece. I'm a leadership specialist and community builder at UNSW, and I'm also known as Head of Making Friends. The most important thing to me here at the uni is to make sure our 60,000 students feel connected, that they belong, they matter. In our now hyper-connected world, we're facing a loneliness epidemic which is taking a serious toll on our health and our well-being, and could be the next economic and public health crisis. Working at a university, I've come across so much research that points to community as the missing piece to helping solve this very real issue. But building community is really hard. So I thought I'd go out into the real world and interview the likely and the not so likely experts about how they build their communities. I'd like to share with you what we've learned and what the science says about how to build open and sustainable communities that boost connection and reduce loneliness. Why? We believe community really is the key to future-proofing education and also your business, our public services and personal relationships. Because belonging is better. Community is about working together to make all our lives better. When we all have the opportunity to share our ideas and have a say on what matters to us, together we can find creative solutions to common problems. But how exactly do we build communities like this and why is it so important that we do? Luckily, I know just the person to talk to when it comes to supporting communities in a way that builds resilience within and relationships between. Today, my guest is someone who knows a lot about resilient communities, Gopinath Parel. Gopi is a social entrepreneur, storyteller, responsible tourism advocate, and innovative community facilitator. He has extensive experience working with communities, responding to a need, whether it's palliative care or natural disasters. Gopi runs one of India's first responsible tourism organisations, The Blue Yonder, which is based on the idea that responsible tourism can be a mechanism for community development. Gopi predominantly works in Kerala, a tropical state in southwestern India inhabited by more than 33 million people. With 25 years' experience as a community volunteer in palliative care in Kerala and a responsible tourism business built on a desire to protect one of Kerala's most important rivers, Gopi knows the region and its people well. In fact, his relationships with members of local communities have been central to his work with communities responding to devastating natural disasters in Kerala, particularly the floods of 2015 and flooding in subsequent years. When it comes to community, Gopi's view is that leadership is a process of collaboration and co-creation. While our conversation today focuses on communities responding to crisis, it'll become clear that all types of communities thrive when they're resilient and have a good story to tell. (music) 
And Gopi, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Um, we first met at Deakin University um, and we were both there at the Humanitarian Leadership Conference. I'm so grateful um, for you sharing your time with us today, all the way from India, which is fantastic. Um, it's like you're, we're sitting in the same room. It's brilliant. So welcome so much to The Missing Piece. Thank you. Thank you so much. I understand that you actually started off in palliative care. Um, so it'd be great to just kind of understand from you your journey to, to where you are now. A lot of time when people ask me, I kind of try to divide my life into three phases. And it's been palliative care, responsible tourism and the humanitarian sector. But it's always been interlinked. So it we had uh, two doctors in Kerala, Dr. Suresh and Raj who set up the first palliative clinic in Kerala. That was in way back in 93. And then one of my friends, she told me that she just came across a pain clinic. And I've never heard the word pain clinic, neither have I heard uh, palliative care at that time. And then she said, this is your kind of place. This is all she said. So I went in basically to figure out what is my kind of place. And then I realized, okay, uh, I'm there to volunteer for two weeks basically spending time with people who are uh, terminally ill or incurably ill. And it was an eye-opening for me uh, where someone as normal or regular as I am uh, could actually make a huge difference uh, to such people just by sitting there, just by listening to these people, you know, people who are about to die, people who are in utter crisis, emotional crisis or sometimes even, uh, you know, spiritual crisis because they were not aware of the fact that they could just die. You know, so that two weeks ended up becoming three years. I volunteered there. I was even the ambulance driver for the first home care unit that we launched. But then I still continue to volunteer. It's my 25th year. Uh, not as involved as I used to be, but wherever the blue yonder goes, the first thing we do is to actually uh, talk about palliative care to the community. So in places like Kerala or in Pondicherry, we played a small role in terms of <clears throat> introducing community-based palliative care. And then uh, after the whole palliative care journey, I went on, you know, because uh, I had not completed my schooling education so there was so much of peer pressure so i took it far too seriously and i went on to do three masters after that. <laughs> you did three masters then i ended up doing a masters in disaster management you know and but uh, interestingly instead of moving into humanitarian sector i ended up setting up india's first uh, responsible travel company yeah, I mean, for me, palliative care, the community-based palliative uh, care and how I got introduced to it, it is basically the, bot, uh, you know, the rock bottom. Uh, it's it's basically the foundation on which uh, whatever I have done in, in the future, you know, after that. And because there, especially these two people, uh, Dr. Suresh and Dr. Rajkopal, who kick-started this initiative, when they started... Um, they didn't even have a proper office or a room. They set up this in their dressing room in the medical college, you know, and then they reached out and no one had heard about palliative care at that time. 
I'm talking about 1993, UK was a leader in palliative medicine. So these two people, they got trained there. And when they came back, uh, they understood a couple of stuff. Their observation was like, hospices are wonderful, but that is probably not a model, uh, very capital intensive model that we could pursue in a country like India. So they were looking for community-based neighborhood networks where if I'm unwell, it's my neighbor who takes care of me. You know, basic training and more than, and for the medical interventions, of course, you have the professionals, but there are many other things, you know, uh, like how do you give uh, psychological support to someone or give, uh, you know, spiritual support to someone? You know, I'm not talking about religion per se, but it's like, you know, someone at the age of 36 all of a sudden is told that, you know, you've got only six months to live. How do you cope with that? You know, so you need a network, very deeper connection um, within the community. So you are not left alone in a hospital to die. So, but to build up this whole thing, we needed money as well. So one decision they had taken was that they will not really go for very large grants or funds. Instead, uh, they would actually go down to the people, to the community, you know, even if it's only one rupee a day, that that's fine. But that makes a huge difference because we also have uh, the advantage of a large population. Yes. You know, so, yeah. So I got introduced to crowdfunding in 93 there. You know, now it's a big thing, but at that time... Yeah, you know, I was going to say, yeah, this was that's a, a really thing. early crowdfunded project. Yeah, so people started. So so that idea of co-creation, collaboration, and the crowdsourcing, uh, I learned it all from the community-based palliative care work. And now in any initiative that we got involved in the future, uh, after that, it was always based on this idea. You know, even, even the post-floods in Kerala or any of the disasters where we got into, you know, we got involved, it was always about this. Yeah. And so when when you started Blue Yonder, what inspired you to set up the, the travel company and, and and what made it different? Why, why did you want to make it different to other travel companies? Well, uh, the Blue Yonder happened mostly because of the passion I had for the river. Like I'm seeing the river in a very bad condition and then uh, I did reach out to a couple of people that I met in a um, riverside meeting one literally midnight uh, where they were all sitting together uh, with a lot of nostalgia about the river being in a bad condition but how wonderful it was so, so this river was so much part of the romance of our growing up but what I was not comfortable was that this was purely romantic and I was not hearing anything, things that were practical. I'm not saying poetry is not a good tool to communicate. It is. But then what exactly are we doing? You know, is it, you know, how do, how do we bring sense of ownership for our people so that they don't destroy the river, you know? So we are all personally responsible for uh, even drying out of small streams in places like Kerala or the whole climate crisis. You know, we all have contributions to it, but we hardly talk about it. We hardly take responsibility for it. So how do you bring in this responsibility? So that is, that's where the whole thought process started. I mean, like, you know, how do, how do we 
bring in an attention on the uh, on the river in people's mind you know so we started looking at communities who were directly or indirectly related to the river how many of them actually do make a living off the river other than the sand smugglers you know so we found porters we found weavers because they need the water they need the river then we met with farmers so a lot of communities so we started designing trips uh, based on these communities by telling their stories so they had songs they had performances they had folk art forms all these kind of stuff so we linked up all these things so we along with launching a responsible travel company we brought in the cultural storytelling in tourism in india that's fantastic that's really really good and um, explain to me how blue yonder helps the local community so what's the connection other than you know you're building awareness so people people come and they visit that area and they see the local businesses and the families and the potters and the weavers that are working and, and the connection with the river how, how do you manage to have that impact in, in the community so uh one of the key observation we had when we set up the business was there's a limit uh on which how you can invest on the whole idea of romance you know uh like you know yeah you can talk about very passionately about the river but by end of the day what is very important is to convince people that they can actually make a living of this romance so we whatever we design of course there was a lot of passion in it but we always ensured that the people that we invited to work with us were handsomely paid that they could make a living of it they could make a living of this cause and that's what we so so for example we were looking at communities who were directly involved with the river one most obvious um community they they were the sand smugglers you know can i go and talk to a sand smuggler and tell him see you are hurting the environment so please stop why should he or she stop it because it's bringing them good money so unless and until i can show them an alternative you know if not a supplementary source of income they are not going to listen to me so we started the small um, country boat cruises through the river along the river uh, river banks where uh, we they they ferry my travelers so we never managed to match what they were earning earlier but along with the money we gave them dignity that worked a lot they had a lot of respect and they were thrilled about taking travelers so their horizon it was also expanding they were meeting more people so so it's not always about money you know it's about self respect it's about the respect you get from others it's about the dignity in which you treat people then we started looking at communities who were very talented very creative but because of the class system because of the caste system because of uh, prevailing um you know perceptions of other communities about what they do there were a lot of people who would never get a performance space um you know people who will not be celebrated because of their background so we started working with such people uh, telling that you know in this modern world uh we need to think differently it's the art has to be in the front and and then again that's so easy to talk about but how do you implement it you know so again we started we created something for example called a musical trail 
So in the musical trail, what happens is people from one particular community, uh, they set up a small school, you know, one room school, and they were struggling to sustain it financially, you know. So we started bringing in the travelers. And instead of just looking at how they practice or how they train, we created a script around it. How certain kind of music or school of thoughts came to the banks of this river from different, different locations and how it all merged into creating the kind of music that we have. So this also made the community think a lot. This also made a typical trip in a place like Kerala more exciting and, you know, um, uh, it was more experiential for the traveler. They are not seeing a stage performance. They are within the community. They are interacting with them. They are playing on like, you know, 10, 12 different musical instruments and they are sharing. So there's a lot of exchange happening. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like an amazing experience for everybody involved. Yeah, you should come over. <laughs> I want to, absolutely. I'm definitely going to take you up on that. Yeah, definitely. So, so, so initiatives like that. So music, boat trips, then we started documenting the folk art forms in partnership with a lo lot of people. And anything we did, one thing we focused was again going back to the whole palliative care experience or co-creating. You know, we knew that we are too small and very limited when it comes to imagination, but that's where crowdsourcing helps. Collaboration helps a lot, you know, because you can have 10,000 ideas, you talk to 1,000 people rather than just banging your head. Um, I love the concept of co-creation. Well, this is all about providing agency to the communities to take decisions on their own. Like I am not advising or telling anyone what to do. I'm just listening and observing what is going on. And instead of a solution provider, I or my organizations that I'm involved in has always been a facilitator. We are just a platform where people can bounce ideas and we co-create things. So I, you know, that whole collaboration and uh, co-creation is a key foundation for community development. GOPI demonstrates two key elements of responsible leadership in community. The first is to stop thinking of yourself as a leader and start thinking of yourself as a co-creator. Secondly, GOPI is describing responsible leadership practice which values cultivating relationships that help us solve problems and achieve outcomes which benefit all of us. Human capital management expert, Dr. Alan Burton-Jones, describes responsible leadership as one that emphasizes effectiveness, ethical behavior, and respect for stakeholders, and practices which are economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable. Sustainable development expert, Ernesto Soroli, advises that those who wish to be effective community leaders should also see themselves not as an authority, but as a servant to the local passion and the local people. Soroli proposes that if we want to help, the first thing we have to do is listen. And he learned this the hard way. Here he is on the TED stage explaining what can go wrong when we lead without listening. We Italians uh, decided to teach Zambian people how to grow food. So we arrived there with Italian seeds in southern Zambia in this absolutely magnificent valley 
going down to the Zambezi River, and we taught the local people how to grow Italian tomatoes and zucchini. And, and of course, the local people had absolutely no interest in doing that, so we paid them to come and work, and sometimes they would show up. <laughs> And we were amazed that the local people in such fertile valley would not have any agriculture. And, uh, but instead of asking them how come they were not growing anything, we simply said, thank God we're here. <laughs> Just in the nick of time to save the Zambian people from starvation. In this talk, Ciroli goes on to describe how his team just couldn't understand why the local community weren't growing their food. But they soon learned why. I'll let Ciroli tell you what happened. When the tomatoes were nice and ripe and red, overnight, some 200 hippos came out of the, from the river and they ate everything. <laughs> and we said to the Zambians, my God, the hippos. And then Zambia said, yes, that's why we have no agriculture here. <laughs> why didn't you tell us? You never asked. Soroli's story perfectly sums up how useless our efforts can be when we see ourselves as leaders instead of collaborators. Responsible leadership is about being a co-creator, facilitator and networker, more than an authority. A responsible leadership approach ensures that everyone has a say and understands relationships to be the foundation of sustainable communities. So in terms of tourism then, and, and in my mind, I'm now linking together all of the work because it's very community-based. So everything that you're doing in terms of your travel and the tourism company is very, very community-based and wanting to have that impact on your community. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering now how that plays into the disaster relief work as well and how you combine those two aspects of your world. Um, is there a role that tourism plays in disaster relief? And, and if so, what is that role? About depending upon who is talking to whom, at least five to eight percentage of the greenhouse gas emission, global greenhouse gas emission is coming from the tourism and hospitality sector. Um, but at the same time, what is not looked into are the potential that the sector has for what I would call as doing the heavy work for the humanitarian sector. And this is, this is coming from a school of thought, like, you know, it's not a um, hypothesis, but it's, 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 it's coming from our experience. In 15 years, uh, the Blue Yonder uh, got involved in about six major interventions. And in all these things, one thing that we observed is that with climate change and the global warming going up and up, uh, destinations are going to be affected brutally and just to give you one example in 2015 lonely planet had uh, come out with a list of 15 cities to be visited in 2015 yeah and chennai in south india was part of that so a lot of travelers they have this um, idea of you know ticking the bucket list they are like okay you're featured in the top 10 I will be there you know so a city like Chennai that's expecting more travelers than normal 
was shut down for more than two weeks. The airport was shut down for two weeks. And for a small company like the Blue Yonder, at that time, we were expecting about 70-75% of our travelers arriving through Chennai in South India. And this was because of the floods in 2015? Yeah, there was a heavy rain. Yeah. And, then, um, and it's not only affecting uh, the local community, it's affecting businesses, software companies were shut down. Uh, people, you know, you just can't move from one place to another. And electricity goes off, power networks are down, mobile networks are down. So there's, you know, a few billion dollars loss every time something like this happens. We are talking about a tourism economy that is about roughly five billion US dollar. And the money Kerala needed to rebuild a better Kerala was exactly five billion US dollars. So you can imagine the scale of damage that could be created, you know, but then uh, what the company did, the Blue Yonder did, was when the Cyclone Isla happened, I was in Berlin around that time in my office. And when we started getting information about how the communities and our partners were affected, my first thought was to fly in because this is what I'm trained for. But then I thought I could actually save that money and hand over the work to the local communities because they are the first responders down there. But instead of that, what we did ended up doing was I stayed back in Berlin, networked with a lot of our partners, you know, companies like Grey Stores in Copenhagen and many other partners and our own travelers. And we kept on updating them about what is happening in, East, in, in this place. Because if I've been to Melbourne once and then in a week or two or next year, when I hear that there has been a disaster there, obviously I'm going to listen because it was a place that I connected to. So there's an emotional investment there. So we wanted to capture that and tell the people and we wanted them to be the ambassadors about what's happening here. But at the same time, use that emotional value network uh, between the travel trade and the community and the travelers in such a way that we could actually raise funds. So we started uh, tweeting, we uh, set up a website like in about 10, 15 minutes. Then we created a lot of social media handles and then we regularly kept on updating stories from the ground. You know, we invited travel writers, friends who said we will pay from our pocket. We will go there. We will volunteer because that's what they are good at. They are good at documenting stuff. But un unlike the earlier time where they were writing about the beauty of how wonderful it was to be followed by a tiger or to follow a tiger, here they are talking about cyclone and the impact and what the communities were doing. So this is not a dark tourism, but this is like what they were doing is to let the world know what was happening so that you could take conscious decisions, whether it might be raising funds or maybe actually booking a trip for next year, which can boost the local economy, stuff like that. So you're connecting with those people. So connecting with the organizations that have customers that would have visited Kerala, Chennai in the past, have that emotional connection with the place and mm -hmm. think, I was there, I was there two years ago, it was so beautiful, I had an amazing time, the people are so wonderful, and now I want to help. And just using those connections and the social media in a really smart way to, to build that awareness, that was yeah. how you were able to influence and, and start to help support the community. 
So this is where we thought when, say, for example, when the Kerala floods happen, uh, we ended up working in a community of weavers. Uh, and then, I mean, we, we knew these guys like even earlier. It's not we met them during the flood. You know, the Blue Yonder used to run um, textile trails in this community. So it was an addition. We, we've been there, say, since 2009. We knew these people. And we used to run trips in certain, not, not all the 300 families that we know now. But then it was like, you know, 10 or 20 people. And we were uh, taking our travelers to meet them, interact with them, try their hands on the hand looms and stuff like that. So this is a community. So it's 300 families. They live in one spot yeah in, in a small village yeah it's closer to and Kutu. they're all weavers they are all weavers yeah 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 so they they, they were uh brought from tamil nadu like you know uh, centuries ago uh so that they could become the royal dressmakers you know for the kuchin maharaja that's oh. that's how yeah so they so so the, so there's a huge tradition there so when the flood happened for about seven eight days all the looms, houses, everything was underwater for like, I think up to eight or 12 feet in many places. So you can imagine all the stocks completely damaged. And it was one month before a local festival. You know, we have like your Christmas, we have something called Onam where everyone comes home for 10 days. You know, it's a fun time. That's where they buy new clothes and 75 percentage of their annual turnover actually comes from this one festival so they lost and the flood everything. happened just at that time when they had exactly all of the, the yeah stocks ready for exhibition for sales showrooms everything went underwater so i was involved with my team uh, in disaster response there and immediately once the water started going down i went to check what is happening with the community that we used to work with. And then I saw the stinking clothes uh, lying down all over there. And then when I asked them, what are you guys going to do with it? They said, we don't have any idea. Maybe we'll just set fire to it. So one was the environment damage of, you know, just imagine tons of clothes being burned in every village where there was a flood or, uh, or even think about, um, I mean, these are ex- clothes it's terrible to see them you know uh, being destroyed they spent months oh, making yeah, those yeah, clothes yeah. in that fabric months, yeah. and that was you know for, for right. the rest of the year that was going to be supporting the village for the, the majority of the rest of the year exactly so so we were looking at two things one is these are highly skilled weavers you know they the way they make like in a, in a, in a one uh, square inch they have about 120 mesh you know so you so you can imagine how exquisite these uh, clothes are so you need to celebrate these people irrespective of what happened that was one thing the other thing was that you need to give them confidence that not everything is gone or destroyed that they can rebuild on it but at the same time it can't be a charity stuff where you just give money to them then we looked at a lot of NGOs coming in there, national as well as international. And I was kind of petrified to see the way most of them were working uh, because they were all busy collecting data, which is needed, I understand. But the process is too slow 
they are collecting data they are uh, figuring out okay now this happened here this is what is needed these are all good thing but that they need to send this to their superior then it goes to delhi then it goes to their funder in geneva by the time it comes these people are back to you know i mean it, it's a I mean, I mean the, yeah. the fabric is just sitting there it's and sitting it's just there. rotting. So, because, we, yeah. so we had to come out with an idea where they start earning from tomorrow. And they should be able to do that, not through charity, but by investing in their own skills so that they have an agency about how they want to devise and design their livelihood and you know a life with dignity. That's where this whole idea of this little doll called Chekuti happened you know which you might have seen during that conference yes i still have them i have them hanging up in the office actually <laughs> at the moment i love my chakuti dolls they're, oh, they're beautiful so so then uh, when this was the situation i reached out to a friend of mine lakshmi who was into recycling upcycling uh, a crazy young girl so i spoke to her and said you know we've got all this tons of clothes here we need to recreate something out, out of this upcycle something like this and her first observation was that you know that's not going to work uh because you know this whole handloom sector has already been struggling so if we come out with something that is associated with the handloom it's going to be difficult to get an emotional connect with people and that's where we started uh, rethinking about the whole idea of how do we celebrate the people that's where we actually came up with the tagline that this chekuti doll is actually a beacon of resilience and then what she did was to uh, transform one sari which is about 6 meter into tiny little dolls so a sari which would otherwise cost you 1500 to 2000 rupees all of a sudden became 9000 rupees worth product you know four times more than what you could otherwise sell so in 120 days about 120000 dollars were raised all the looms were back in action not only because of our intervention there were so many other people also doing uh very innovative stuff so i was was probably one of the stories that the media liked i was was one of the story that because of our active uh participation on social media that you know it it, it literally became a beacon of um kerala you know how people stood together and how they overcame uh especially in the background of when everyone is talking about localization globally here was an effort purely designed within the local community uh purely owned operated managed by the local community you know so that's why it was i think it became uh, super popular yeah <laughs> So I'm imagining that at the time you're working with all of these families and the families that you, that you were already connected with um and and they were dragging this fabric out of the mud essentially and you were helping to arrange to get that cleaned and then they were making these hundreds and thousands of dolls um that must have been an incredible process for people to go through together um but was there a particular story or a particular family that that you were really connected with that 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 told you what their personal impact of that activity had for them and how that had helped in that situation well a, a, a lots of stories actually <laughs> uh <clears throat> like when i you know in my presentations or storytelling about this whole uh 
uh, intervention that we did during the flood, I always show a photograph of two women weavers. And it's a photograph where they are standing by a destroyed loom, but telling their story so passionately with so much of a smile on their face. This struck me so much uh, because there was already a resilient community, right? And how they are overcoming this whole story. So that is where we thought it's important for us to let the world know how strong these people are and how do we do it. So interestingly, Facebook uh, send a team. Facebook sent a team to study the impact of uh, what we did. So they came, so they were so impressed with what you'd done because through, through the social media, you connected the world to this very, very small village in India. You connected people directly to what was happening there, to these families mm -hmm. of weavers. And yeah. as, as I understood it from when you, you told the story, when, when I was in the room, when you told the story and I heard it for the first time, that was an immediate impact. You set that up really, really quickly. You gathered a huge following very, very quickly. And then you set up a funding site to sell the dolls. Yeah, yeah. It was all done in like four, four or five hours. Like even the when, when we decided to make the first doll, what we did was um, Lakshmi manages a lot of my, my friend who was the co-creator in this. She manages a lot of WhatsApp groups. So she send out a message to the all local uh, WhatsApp groups because during the flood, WhatsApp, Google and Facebook played a major role as a tool for people to stay connected. And I guess, that, you know, sometimes social media gets quite a bad rap in terms of the negative things that social media create. But actually, that is performed an amazing role. That So when we decided to make the dolls, other than sending messages on our WhatsApp group, what we did was on our, you know, the business websites, as well as our own personal profile, we started telling like, okay, at 9.30 a.m. we are going to be by this metro station. We are going to make the doll. And we told them a little story. First two minutes, there were only two of us, then five, 10, 20, and every single media company in that city came there. And then and then they just they, they made it viral, not us, you know, but we told stories as authentic as it is possible. No masala added to it. It was exactly what was happening to it, you know, but it had passion in it. People could relate to it. So someone sitting uh, like Lakshmi actually even walked into uh, the Google headquarters in the US with the little doll. You know, because there were a lot of people from Kerala who were in higher positions, you know, in the CXOs, their families were stuck in the flood, so they could relate to it. Mm. You know, so... So okay. so the family, so people from Kerala working in the US... US, Australia, in, all over. Like yeah. H HP in Sydney uh, ran a Chekuti doll workshop. You know? And there were so many universities around the world um, who did that. So people could relate to it. And But all this happened because of the powerful storytelling over social media. Like, you know, during the rescue also, one thing that we focused 
uh, I was telling all my colleagues that the moment you see a positive story, document it and share it online. It doesn't need to be an essay. It could be two liners, three liners, like just to give you one idea, like one of the um, uh, schools, it's a four-story school. There were about 1,800 people who were stuck there. So we went there, did the rescue, like, you know, except for 250 people, we managed to move uh, everyone else in the first 24 hours. And the next day, when we were leaving the place after water had gone down and people were all shifted to safe place, I noticed there was one lady uh, refusing to leave. So I asked her, why don't you want to go home? And she's, she might be about 55 or 60 years old. And she said, see, this place has been my home for past four days. Do you really leave your home clean, uh, dirty when you leave? You keep it clean, right? So she cleaned up the place that she stayed. I'm talking about a hall where hundreds of people were sleeping and using it. So you can imagine how messy it would have been. And she, and when I took a photograph, there was not even a small piece of paper anywhere. And you could see the outside world reflected on the floor. So I took that particular photograph and I posted telling what she said that this was home for me and I don't, I will not keep it clean. It was read by far more than a million people. Next day morning when I woke up, every media house in India had carried that story. You know, so it is important to share these positive stories, especially during a disaster. And that's where you could use your business, you could use your personal network, share the story everywhere. That's one step closer to building a resilient community. And more, or, more than all this, it was important to portray a positive image of Kerala to other people in other parts of the world who want to support us. We know that you're super passionate. Do you describe yourself as a community leader? No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you describe yourself as? I work with the community. I, I would, I think, fit into the definition of a social entrepreneur and maybe a storyteller. <laughs> Stories are powerful, and some of their power comes from their capacity to evoke empathy. Research now shows that stories move us in a way that dry information and statistics just can't. Behavioural psychologist Dr Susan Weinshek has demonstrated that when we're presented with raw facts, only the listening and word processing centres of the brain are activated. However, when we hear a story, we experience additional brain activity in the areas we'd expect to be activated as if we were living the experience ourselves. Humans are hardwired to love stories. As public policy professors Crow and Jones tell us, stories help us to understand the world. We can see this from Gopi's account of a woman's personal experience during the flood that had the capacity to go viral and communicate the hope and resilience of a local community. A 2019 report from We Are Social tells us that our use of social media and the internet in general is growing every day. This means that when we share stories via social media, we might just reach half the population of the planet. 
However, we have to be conscious of which stories we are telling. In her TED talk back in 2009, Nigerian novelist Chimamanda Adichie warned us that there is a danger in the stereotypes that a single story can create. Adichie tells us that when we only tell stories of catastrophe, we limit our capacity for empathy. She and Gopi both believe in the importance of telling stories that communicate the tenacity and innovation of communities who, historically, may have been associated with stories of disaster and helplessness. I've heard you talk about the difference between charity mode and enterprising mode. Is, is that an example of that switch between people wanting to, to just give money and then finding ways to actually build the resilience in the community? So utilising the strength and resources within the community to actually support the community. The difference between the whole charity mode and entrepreneurial way of looking at things is, one is whenever a crisis happens, there is a tendency for people to be part of this whole process by contributing whatever they can. Sometimes it is uh, money. Many times these are materials. But what happens in many cases, unfortunately, even in these days, is that you get a lot of surplus and unwanted relief materials. You know, someone sitting in the US or, I don't know, Australia or even in you know, other cities in India, they are contributing whatever they have with them without really checking what exactly is the need of the community. So you are not providing an agency for the community to take their own decisions, you know, irrespective of um, the whole humanitarian sector trying to uh, focus a lot on localization. This is not really happening in a larger scale, uh, you know, how I would like to see. A lot of people, they want to come down. They're like, okay, I am starting to drive. I am here by the border. Where do I go? And every one of them are doing it because of the passion. Genuinely, they want to help. But no one really thinks that managing the volunteers sometimes become the disaster. Yeah. So sometimes you want to go and help because, you know, for all of the right reasons. You don't don't have a core competency. You don't have a core competency. You are not a disaster manager, you know, but if you have specific skills which can be matched with our requirement, then please come, you know, and this is something this is this is all about localization, you know. So so we yeah. So that that's that's one reason why we kept on sharing this stories, telling that, you know, we are hit, but we are not down. You know, we are managing things quite a lot of our own, but wherever I even created one post, I remember with the traffic signal colors, you know, uh, like it's like clearly telling like, OK, this is the situation we are not saying we don't need help because we are arrogant people. We are telling because even we are evaluating what is it that we need as and when we know we will keep on sharing and we are doing our best to meet the requirements locally. And if we cannot, of course, we will come to you and please come and help us, you know. So that brought a lot of respect onto the people of Kerala, I believe. Have there been other areas around the world that have adopted a similar kind of form in other situations of being able to support communities? Yeah, I, um, you know, the I immediately after the flood, uh, there was a 
World Reconstruction Conference that happened in Geneva. That was immediately uh, just before the conference where I met you in Melbourne. So that World Reconstruction Conference was also um, along with another global platform where humanitarians from all around the world had, you know, come together in Geneva. And Chikuti was a superstar there because UNDRR, UN Disaster Risk Reduction Initiatives or, um, you know, all the UN platforms directly working, UNEP and everyone, they are all talking about disaster risk reduction. They are talking about the need for community resilience. And so they could relate to the stories that people from Kerala were talking about, you know. So the Chekuti doll became a superstar there. And then um, to answer you specifically, I met uh, a group of women who were represented by Hauri um, uh, Commission, and they were based out of about um, 59 countries in the world. And these women entrepreneurs and leaders were talking about how Chekuti inspired them that uh, they would want to look into income generation uh, programs rather than always waiting for funds coming from abroad that they could actually uh, invest in the local community. So we are still actually in touch with all these people and that has actually inspired us to set up a new initiative called Resilient Communities. Tell us a bit more about that. So what, what, what does um, resilient communities mean to you or how, how do you define resilient communities and what are you doing now in terms of your resilient communities oh, piece the of work. whole idea of resilient communities came from our experience you know of uh, how the blue yonder as a travel company intervened in disasters but one if you look at it it was how we utilized our infrastructure and our network online and offline to be first responders and we know we know that they're on the increase so we're expecting there to be obviously climate change progressing in the way that it is at the moment, we're expecting that is the natural disasters to be much more frequent and to be hitting areas like Kerala and other parts in the world. Even Australia, look at look at all your bushfires that's happening. And I'm really I'm so interested in the concept that you're building this on, which because when we think about climate change and we talk about climate change, it's such a huge issue. And most people understand that there are very little things that it is very little that individuals can necessarily do to impact that um but what you're saying is that actually by supporting resilient communities we're we're acknowledging that these changes are happening we're doing what we can we might go to protest we might lobby our political um, our mps and, and other politicians and we might ask for change but at the same time there's actually quite a lot that individuals can do via other businesses or themselves to help support communities around the world Exactly. This, and I, I would rather like to look at climate crisis as an opportunity to turn around things. We have not lost at all, but we might lose it if we don't take an action. You know? And instead of doing charity again, like, you know, don't don't put a gun on someone's head and say, you know, do charity and try to save the world. Instead, show them that there is actually a business opportunity. You know, from renewable energy to, you know, like, just imagine the scenario if 150 hotels in a small place like Cochin in Kerala decides to invest in one kayak per hotel. 
and place it strategically across Cochin, then it becomes a crowdsourced pool where the tour operators can actually use those equipments. It can, it's an income generation for the community. It's a happy experience for the traveler. It's a new product. At the same time, when a crisis happens, do you have to wait for the national disaster management organizations to fly down and save you? No, you have the resources locally, you know, so you train local people on how to swim, how to save someone who is drowning or, you know, how do you save someone when a landslide happens, you know. So a lot of heavy lifting for the humanitarian sector can actually be done by the tourism sector. That's what I am proposing. <laughs> GoPe believes in the potential for resilient communities to find their creative and sustainable solutions. But community resilience is actually a fairly new concept. While positive psychologists define individual resiliency as the process of positive adaptation in the context of adversity or risk, community resilience is the whole community's ability to positively adapt to challenges. Disaster recovery specialist and psychology professor Douglas Payton explains that community resilience is not the sum of individual resilience within the community, but rather how well the community works together. This idea is backed by findings from a New Zealand study of communities that were affected by earthquakes there, where connected communities with strong pre-existing community infrastructure were able to respond better to disasters. But resilience requires community members to have agency. Social geographer Dr. Lenore Newman says that agency allows communities to increase their access to critical resources, networks and knowledge, which helps to overcome barriers and solve problems. However, a surefire way to undermine community resilience is to view communities as unable to help themselves. We need to be listening to people like Dagan Ali, head of African Development Agency Adesso, who are frustrated when funding goes to external actors rather than innovative and community-led approaches to development. Since local communities have the understanding and lived experience to drive sustainable development, Ali is calling for the localization of humanitarian work and for local knowledge and community needs to be put first. This, she says, will bring about sustainable development while building community resilience. Framing communities as resilient and resourceful, rather than vulnerable and needy, is the first step to ensuring that communities can find their own creative and sustainable solutions to problems. What you've been talking about is what can be accomplished in really extreme circumstances such as disaster. Um, are there things that you learned from Kerala, from the floods, the other work that you've done that you think can be translated into other communities in day-to-day -day life? So when, when we're not in that disaster mode, what is it around the community building activities that you think we can translate to day-to-day to -day life? Having a sense of humor can help you go through a crisis. And I'm not joking about it because when uh, the floods happen, our social media space was filled up with memes that people created about the situation. Like, you know, because when the flood initially came in, it was a fun time for us. We've never been surrounded by so much of water. 
and people were like doing crazy stuff. They were like bringing out uh, ice box underwater. They will go in, go down, dive in. They pick up a couple of beers and they will come out and they make Instagram shots of this, those kind of stuff. And then um, uh, the way how we, we, you know, I don't think many people have the um, um, capacity to laugh at themselves. And we are so good at it. The people from Kerala, we laugh at ourselves. We pull our own legs. And even during the crisis, my God, the amount of laughter we had around was just crazy. You know, we had, unfortunately, 400 plus people who died. We lost about almost $5 billion worth, you know. Um, and that's the amount we are looking for in rebuilding. But even during that time, the sense of humor of our community helped us stay together. Yeah, and that is something that, you know, <laughs> I would say, well, that arm should be replicated. <laughs> I think that use of, you know, people really sharing, sharing a joke together, sharing a funny story, sharing a meme, you're, you're developing, you're connecting with each other, aren't exactly. you? On a really human yeah. level, you know, and, and sometimes that's through tears, but, you know, often through laughter. Yeah, I think sense of humor should be a... Uh, good study material for humanitarian sector. <laughs> I love to ask people um, that I'm interviewing for the missing piece uh, what how they would maybe um, bring some of their knowledge if they were to swap jobs with somebody else for the day. And so my question for you is, if you could be a university lecturer for the day, what would you take from your current knowledge of community into that role? If you were going to be a university lecturer with a huge classroom of 200 students all waiting to hear what you have to say, what would you take from what you've learned about community into that role? Uh, I will be talking about the necessity to provide agency for people. That uh, especially from a, a perspective of getting involved in development sector, a lot of people, they want to do good and they want to make a difference in someone's life. These are all genuine thoughts, but how it is done is so important. You can't go in there telling like, I'm going to save him or her. And that's very old colonial European way of intervening something. Rather than that, I would think well before getting into the action mode and that will always be by studying what exactly are the requirements and even if i want to help someone do they actually really need me you know this might come across to a lot of western people as an arrogant guy talking you know someone with 400 million people still in poverty but that's the way to go you know you our job has to be about facilitating this agency for the community to be empowered, you know, so that they could take their own decisions. I'm not saying that people should not seek support, but support only when they seek support, you know, don't don't play this role of I'm going to save someone. So we, we get a lot of volunteerism requests from people from around the world. And I actually ended up writing an article about why volunteerism is really bad for us, you know, because uh, I mean, just imagine I am coming to Melbourne, uh, wanting to save the people of Melbourne. It's so weird, you know, like someone living in Paris wanting to fly down to India because it's very exotic. We have snake charmers. Why don't you just go to some of the districts 
in the suburbs of Paris and look at all the immigrant population there. But it's not exotic. Go to East London, you know, work with communities with drug problems. Uh, people don't want to do it because it's not exotic. It's not sexy enough, you know. So what I always suggest is it's good. We are all compassionate people. We want to make a difference. Start with your neighborhood, maybe. And then when you want to do some exotic stuff, really think if people actually need us or not, you know. This applies to people living in cities in India also. Someone living in a big city like Bangalore, like, you know, they have a disposable income, they want to do something good, but do you really need to be there in action? Why don't you allow local people to figure out what they need and then only if they need, be there. I think that brings in a lot of dignity and respect into the community. That's wonderful. Thank you, Gopi. Um, and just one final, final question. Mm, you're cheating. I don't know. Uh, no, I am cheating. Um, do you have a job description? I'm not sure if you've written a job description for yourself at Blue Yonder, um, but if you do, or even if you don't, is community in your job description or should it be in your job description? Yeah, yeah, of course. As I said, I will never call myself as a community leader, but my life is all about community, right? Gopi, thank you so much. Um, I've enjoyed our conversation so much and I've learned a huge amount, I think, from your perspective on how you've worked with local communities um, in, in Kerala and how you've begun to influence others through your storytelling. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gopi, for that wonderful conversation. I know there is a huge amount that we can all take away from the range and the ways that you're approaching building resilience in local communities. So here are my top three takeaways. Number one, beware of the hippos. What assumptions are you making about the community? Listening and asking questions should always be the first step and might help you save your tomatoes. Number two, spin a good yarn. Finding a powerful and empowering story is a great way to tap into empathy by communicating the full picture. And number three, focus on community-led initiatives. Building long-term resilience supports creative and sustainable communities who are then better able to tackle problems based on local knowledge and needs. Thank you for listening to this episode. Make sure you head over and follow me at Rachel Abel on Facebook or Rachel Abel underscore on Twitter. You can find snippets and additional content on the Missing Piece YouTube channel and all other kinds of posts on our Instagram at tmp.podcast. I'm Rachel Abel, Head of Making Friends, and you've been listening to The Missing Piece.